When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Historical Materialism. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. The Democratic Socialists of America have exploded in the last few years, going from just a couple thousand members to close to a hundred thousand. This was from a combination of factors. Two insurgent presidential campaigns by Bernie Sanders, a proto-fascistic movement coalescing around Donald Trump, the specter of climate change, a worldwide pandemic, general increasing economic inequality, and a general sense that this world is bad, but a better world might actually be possible. But what exactly is the underlying political philosophy of this organization? Is it actually for socialism or capitalism with a stronger safety net? Is it a subsection of the Democratic Party or an independent movement? And how does it see political and historical change actually happening? In order to answer these questions, my guest, Doug Green, has written a biography of the organization's founder, Michael Harrington. Starting with his early life in Jesuit education, Green tracks Harrington's political development through the 1950s all the way up to 1982 when he founded DSA. Along the way, Harrington developed a conception of political change that would happen within the Democratic Party, a conception that still clearly animates the approach of many on the left today. Written as a comradely critique, the book manages to give a genealogy of many of the tensions that still run through the contemporary left and offers a sobering assessment of what can actually be accomplished when playing by realism's rules. Doug Green is a freelance writer and historian in Boston. He is also the author of Communist Insurgent, Blanqui's Politics of Revolution. His writing has also appeared in a number of outlets, including Left Voice. Doug Green, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, glad to be here. Yeah, I always like to kick episodes off by asking guests to introduce themselves. So could you maybe just tell our listeners a bit about who you are and what your work, research, and writing tends to focus on? Sure. I'm uh, Doug Green. I live in the greater Boston area. I'm a Marxist historian. I do a lot of, uh, I'm a biographer. I focus a lot on 19th and 20th century uh, Europe and the United States, and I'm the author of uh, three books. So there's Communist Insurgent, Blanqui's Politics of Revolution, which is about the 19th century French communist, Louis-Auguste Blanqui, uh, A Failure Vision, uh, Michael Harrington and the Limits of Democratic Socialism, which we're talking about tonight, and a forthcoming book called The Dialectics of Saturn on the Question of Stalinism, which uh, uh, that will probably be out in a few years. 
Yeah, I look forward to reading that as well. So to kick off discussing this book, um, I'll just say that as a relatively young person and someone relatively new to left politics, um, I, like a lot of young people, came left kind of partly because of Bernie, partly in response to Trump. Um, You could add the specter of climate change, capitalist crises, all these sorts of things. And I found an American left that was uh, kind of in something of disarray and split by certain tensions and debates and discussions about, you know, how best to orient ourselves to our current moment. And I found this book really helpful for kind of being in an, in its own way, a genealogy of some of those debates. Um, and I suspect that's a lot of why you decided to write it. So I suspect I'm kind of answering my own question, but to kick things off, um, why did you decide to write about Michael Harrington, someone who you clearly have a lot of disagreement with, um, why did you feel it was worth writing this sort of biography or important to do so? So I I think the biggest reason to write about him is within the last five, six or so years, the organization he founded, the Democratic Socialists of America, has grown from roughly 5,000 members to close to 100,000 members. And it's the largest self-identified socialist organization in the country since World War II. So to me, it makes sense actually to kind of go back to the beginning, like who founded this organization? What were its politics? And do those politics still dominate, influence uh, DSA? And as someone who's much farther to the left of Harrington, I kind of am in the camp that his politics cast a, a large shadow over DSA you know, both uh, historically and currently. And I think those politics are not actually going to help get uh, the working class to socialism. And it's important to understand those politics so we can hopefully come up with a better form of politics that can get us to socialism. Yeah, that's a great um, introduction to the book, I think, and what you're trying to do with it. So to kick off the story, you start with Harrington's Um, early life. He grew up um, in a Jesuit education and also um, had an ongoing relationship to religion, but it was always somewhat ambivalent. He was always kind of moving in and out and kind of always trying to figure out where he stood in relationship to faith. And it did in various indirect ways speak or influence much of his other politics. So I'm wondering if you could speak to maybe some of his early um, kind of intellectual quest and how certain intellectual or spiritual and political seeds were maybe planted in his early life. Sure. So, I mean, he's born into a very Irish American family and it's not like, uh, you know, the Irish Americans on the East Coast at that time, which are very invested in what's going on in the Irish homeland. Um, He actually admits like we weren't Irish in that sense, but they were Irish in the sense like they very much identified with the Catholic Church. His family was, you know, fairly affluent. His father was a lawyer and, you know, his mother was active in the in the church. So he was basically brought up in the faith and. He had a Jesuit education all the way, you know, through primary high school into college. And he absorbed and believed fervently all those Catholic ideas. And part of, you know, the the Catholicism that he absorbed was, first of all, that the Jesuits felt that they were at war with modernity. And that was something he kind of um, absorbed. 
and he didn't and the Jesuits were opposed to ideas of like cultural decadence, decay that they saw coming from modernity that Harrington did not like and actually influenced his ideas on, you know, the counterculture, which he also saw as decadent later on. And furthermore, he also he, he says this in one of his memoirs that ideas have consequences. That's something he learned from the Jesuits. And there was this, uh, this conception about living his faith. The other thing that he absorbed from the uh, from the Catholic Church and just his general background was also a deep seated anti-communism. The church is fervently anti-communist. And when he went to Holy Cross, it was celebrating Francisco Franco, the HUAC and the Red Scare. But his wasn't quite a re- it was he certainly wasn't any form of a fascist or anything like that. He was very influenced by also a social justice Catholicism from Pope Leo the Thirteenth's um, encyclical on social justice from I believe eighteen ninety three, which was kind of supporting unions and workers' rights to a certain extent. So he was influenced by that. Uh, so, but you know he was also. He was torn because, you know, he was in his young years, especially he was, you know, he kind of had a romantic sensibility to him. He was very interested in like existentialist literature and everything. So he's he's very torn about like how where he's going to go. He doesn't want to be a lawyer. And he has various crises of faith because the Jesuit worldview is so integrated that once you question part of it, it kind of falls apart, which it did for him. He kind of said, like, people can't just go to hell for no reason. And, you know, it, it, that actually caused his faith to fall apart at one point. And in his, um, I believe, his t- early 20s or so, uh, he, he, made, he basically said he took basically uh, he made Pascal's wager, I believe, because it's absurd. And at this point, he's uh, he just jumps in and. This around this time, he's also very committed to fighting poverty, but he's not sure how to do it. And once he decides, like, I'm going to take this, this, make this wager on God and the church, he finds what he thinks is the best way to fight poverty. And he joins something called the Catholic Worker Movement that's around like 1950 or so. And they're basically as far left as you can go in the church. They're founded by Dorothy Day, who had a long actually history in the socialist and communist movements. She knew like people like John Reed and Bill Haywood, and she eventually returned to the church. But her group basically worked with poor people in the New York area. You know, they ran soup kitchens. They took vows of poverty. And Harrington did all this. Like he worked in the soup kitchens with the with the poor. But he, he you know, he also had an ambivalence because he came from an affluent family. So he could kind of depend on them for money if he needed to. He actually did not like living in poverty. He said, I like good food. I like good wine. And there's also the added um, contradiction he feels because he was also at this time a committed pacifist, but he was in the Army Reserve and he faced the real danger of, of being shipped out to Korea since the war was going on. And he was an objector and he threw either, you know, depending on your point of view, either divine luck or bureaucratic um, incompetence. He's just given a discharge, an honorable discharge at that. So he doesn't actually... Um, he eventually leaves the church, though. He re, he kind of finds the Catholic worker to be politically ineffectual. And he, you know, he starts getting interested in Marx and Marxism and socialism and all that. And that really kind of pushes him out. But one thing I will say about him is he always, he's not, when he, he becomes an atheist around 1953. 
and he never returns to the church. But he he's not like a he's not someone who hates the church. He has a deep fondness for it. He considers himself culturally Catholic. And I don't really talk about this too much in the book, but there is kind of like this nostalgia for that era of the church that, you know, he's, you know, it's basically like your, your lost youth. He kind of looks back to that. And even a lot of his ideas on socialism are, and Marxism look to make room for the divine, for spirituality. And he even justifies some of his like political choices as almost a Pascalian wager, just albeit, you know, a secular form, but it's the, it's kind of interesting that he still takes that with him even after he, you know, leaves the church. Yeah, jumping right off of that, leaving the Catholic Workers' Party and looking for another way to be politically engaged, he would eventually find himself in the Young People's Socialist League um, and would encounter, among others, Max Schachman, who himself was, uh, he was for a time a Trotskyist in the American left, along with James P. Cannon, but was starting to split into a different political direction. And while Harrington wouldn't follow him all the way and all his views. Um, there was definitely a lot of influence um, from Shackman to Harrington. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about Shackman's political trajectory at the time and what Harrington picked up from that. What sort of milieu did he find himself in as he started sure, to so, move here? Yeah. Yeah. Shackman is probably Harrington's most important political mentor. And even after he breaks with Sh- Shackman, he actually dedicates one of his books to him. And, Shackman, as you say, he has a long history on the Socialist Party, the, the Communist Party, and the Trotskyist movement. He was actually a friend of Leon Trotsky, presided over the founding of the Fourth International. And to kind of situate Harrington from, for this story is um, there's a big break between Shackman and Harrington in 1939 when the, when the Soviet Union has the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and it splits the Socialist Workers' Party. And there's a lot of issues involved, but one of the most important is the, the nature of the Soviet Union. Shack, or Trotsky and Cannon say, you know, the Soviet Union is ruled by a parasitic bureaucracy, but it's still a worker state and we need to defend it against imperialism. Shackman is saying more or less that it's, it's actually a bureaucratic collectivist evil empire. It's imperialist. And he's a little ambivalent at first about whether it's as worth defending against imperialism. Eventually he changes and says, you know, it's not. But they split over this question, the nature of the the Russian question. And during World War II, um, Shackman kind of moves initially from being this kind of third campus who's neither East nor West, you know, but international socialism to basically saying, listen, the Soviet Union is actually objectively worse than Western capitalism. And we need to critically ally with the forces, you know, you know, against with liberal capitalism against it. This doesn't happen all at once. There's like a lot of fits and starts in it. And it comes out in a number of ways, like Herring, um, Shackman allies with like liberal bureaucrats in the labor movement, people like Walter Ruther. And because he considers the, the Stalinists to be the greatest danger to the labor movement. And... So he's definitely moving away from like a revolutionary conception. And he drops, I believe, around 1948, even calling himself a Trotskyist, however heterodox. So and by the 1950s, um, his group, which was originally the Workers' Party and at this point is the Independent Socialist League, is they're not even seeing themselves as a vanguard. And 
they're officially opposed to the Korean War, but Shackman has this idea that, you know, there's Stalinist imperialism and we need to support the democratic labor movement in Korea, South Korea against it. It isn't the official policy of the um, part of his organization, but it's, it's almost offering backhanded support for the Korean War. And but so Shackman is moving this very rightward direction when Harrington encounters him. And Shackman also develops these ideas about kind of trying to go into the Democratic Party and support progressive labor people involved, which eventually becomes realignment. So in terms of three things, the nature of the Soviet Union as this evil empire about supporting, you know, progressive or liberal wings of the labor bureaucracy and the realignment of the Democratic Party. Harrington inherits all three of those from Shackman, and those pretty much become his North Star for his political life. And far more than than Shackman, he really develops realignment into a full-fledged strategy. But um, there is certainly later on, and we can talk about it, obviously, is there are breaks between Harrington and Shackman. But I would argue that it's more over details and tactics as opposed to anything of principle. Yeah. So moving into um, uh, later chapters and kind of into the 1960s, Harrington would be involved, um, especially with the civil rights movement, quite um, involved in it over time. But really what propels him forward politically is the publication of his book, The Other America, which was a sort of expose on American poverty. And this would be um, give him an opportunity to take his kind of realignment idea that he's been thinking about and try and put it into practice because that book not only became something of a bestseller, um, but was also very important to say the Kennedy and Johnson administrations when they're thinking about the great society program. So could you talk a bit about the publication of the other America and how it really put uh, Harrington in a really unique political position and how he tried to respond to that? Sure. So The Other America was uh, published in 1962. And at first, Harrington didn't want to write it, but he's kind of prodded into it by some friends. And he, he did write it. And if you read it, it you can read it in an afternoon. It's probably one of his best books. Like, it's well-written and everything. And it's this expose on poverty, how it affects black people, white people. And he's keep in mind, he's coming from an era where supposedly all the great questions have ended about, you know, inequality in the United States where the end of ideology and, you know, this is the most affluent society. He's saying, listen, there are tens of millions of people in, in poverty in the country. And he goes into it and he draws on experience from the Catholic worker movement, his own journalistic investigations, etc. And if one reads this book, it's filled with like a lot of moral outrage. It's very clear, evocative. And it, but it's also interesting, keep in mind, he, um, from the early 50s, he considers himself a Marxist and a socialist, but this is not a Marxist or a socialist text. It doesn't, you know, if you were a Marxist, you would, and you're expecting that from the text, you won't find it. Because um, he basically says, to solve poverty, we need to appeal to the good liberals, the people in power in the federal government, to basically complete the New Deal and end poverty. So this is not calling for revolution. It's calling for renewed reform. Now, at first, the book sold okay. But what really put it on the map was actually a review, I believe, in the the New York Review of Books by Dwight MacDonald. 
And that book, it was a, that review got into the hands of John F. Kennedy and who was thinking about like doing some kind of anti-poverty program. So it helped inspire some of that. Um, And also the review helped boost sales of the book. But as Kennedy was actually thinking about those anti-poverty plans, he was assassinated. So when Johnson came in, he decided, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, we're going to attack poverty. And that becomes the Great Society programs of the 60s. And as part of it, actually, because Harrington essentially, you know, shoots the stardom because of this book. And he actually, Harrington is kind of annoyed by that later in life. He's like, you know, I write other books because he's always introduces the author of the other America. (laughs) Um, But anyhow, when Johnson does the Great Society programs, he brings Harrington in to the White House. So for about two weeks, Harrington is there. He's meeting with Sergeant Shriver. He meets the president. And and Harrington's kind of aghast at like how they're just throwing all this money out. Like, oh, we can do 10 million here, 20, you know, all that. And he's kind of amazed at this. But Harrington actually is, he wants them to spend even more money than they're suggesting for these programs. So he, he eventually leaves the White House after just a few weeks. And they do push all like these pro, you know, all the programs of, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, all of that. And Harrington actually thinks it's insufficient. He thinks, listen, this is like not as strong as like the welfare states in, say, Western Europe, which he really likes in like Scandinavia or Britain. But Harrington is still, um, he still defends the great society. So for him, he thinks, you know, against conservatives, but he just thinks it doesn't go far enough. So for him, it's like, the other America propels him into intellectual stardom. And it, it kind of uh, showcases a lot of his political um, ideas just in that text about reform, about, you know, a focus on welfare programs and, you know, appealing to the conscience or of, you know, the, the, the liberal elite is where he's kind of looking for change. Yeah, I want to tease out something you were alluding to just now um, about this appeal to this new kind of liberal class of um, kind of maybe you could call them petty bourgeois or, you know, middle managers. Um, So he's moving in terms of thinking about how social and political change happens. He's moving away from this idea that the working class or the proletariat is kind of the engine of history and instead thinks that, you know, authentic revolutionary Marxism somehow translates into appealing to this new middle class. Um, could you maybe speak to that? Like, what's he actually getting at in terms of his theory of social change? So this is what I call his strategy of realignment. And I'll get into like all the question about like, you know, appealing to that. So basically he's he wants to answer the question, why in the United States do we not have like a socialist party like in, in Britain or France or wherever? And how do we get one? And then how do we get to socialism? And all this kind of goes into that. So basically he's like, well, on the one hand, we do have a socialist movement or party. It's a secret one. And he says the, the, the mainstream labor movements of the American Federation of Labor and later the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which fused and become the AFL-CIO, they're effectively the labor party. And, but the thing is they're subsumed in the democratic party. They're part of that. And he thinks that they have essentially a social democratic program. 
it's kind of very strange to think that about some of those people like George Meany was uh, the head of the AFLCO at that time, but he's a notorious racist and anti-communist and very hard to call him any form of liberal or leftist, but Harrington thought so. So on the one hand, he sees that force in the Democratic Party. On the other hand, he, you know, he sees, he says the old Marxist conception of just two classes of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat is outmoded. Because there's this new class, you know, of managers, uh, technicians, you know, this kind of technocratic elite, however you want to put it. He calls it the new class. And he says the new class is emerging. But there's a danger because in Eastern Europe, he says, all these new class people, they became, you know, the, the rulers of the totalitarian states in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. But he says in the West, in, in Europe, in the United States, that that is still an open question whether that can happen. Because he sees progressive tendencies in them because many of them are still in colleges and they're involved in, you know, the civil rights movement and other movements. So he sees them as a potential... Um, movement for change. And he's also looking, you know, to the civil rights movement, the women's movement, and he thinks that they can become a new majority. But he thinks they'll find political expression in the Democratic Party. Now, Harrington knows the Democrats are basically run by the capitalists and the racists, but he thinks if this new majority of the new class, the labor movement and others, if they work hard enough in the Democratic Party, they can push out those other forces of the racists and the capitalists, and they'll go to the Republican Party. And then you'll have a more or less proper two-party system of social Democrats and you know a more pro-capitalist party. And that new realigned Democratic Party will institute changes to give it a welfare state, and eventually we can go from that to socialism. And it's a very peaceful, gradual process. And he actually is very explicit in one of his writings. He says, realignment is the only place where true political beginning can happen. So that is basically his vision, how this all fits in there. And he does see in the long, in the medium, and if not to the long term, as liberals as allies with the working class and socialists for this process. And he thinks you have to have an outside force to pressure, you know, because he is actually at one point the leader of the Socialist Party. So he sees like this inside out strategy as part of realignment. What I would say is it's it sounds on paper almost like this grand strategy of 33rd dimensional chess and everything. But if you kind of think about it, 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 it really doesn't actually get anywhere because on the one hand, the, the Democrats and the working class and all these different interest groups in the Democratic Party, it's not like an equal playing field where they're all getting around the table to, you know, to do all this. The Democrats are basically controlled by the, the capitalist class, lock, stock and barrel. And yes, they do put on the face of the party of the people, but that's really to get, you know, voters and elicit support for the, uh, you know, for big business policies. And furthermore, um, you know, in order to stay in the Democratic Party, you actually have to do things like you, you can't be militant, you can't be revolutionary, you have to be anti-communist, you can't challenge imperialism or wars, and you can't embarrass the liberals. And Harrington's willing to do all that. And he's willing basically to sacrifice the outside to stay inside. So eventually, you know, very quickly, it just becomes a rationalization for voting the, for the Democratic Party. There is realignment is not actually a real strategy. It's it's dead on arrival, basically.
Yeah. Yeah. We'll come back to that. Um, to return a bit to the biography, um, you have a whole chapter on the Port Huron Statement in the Students for Democratic Society. Um, this uh, original document came out and really uh, drew quite a strong reaction from Harrington, which led to a sort of very intense back and forth between him and some younger kind of upcoming student activists. Um he would later apologize and, you know, admit that he overreacted to some degree and that he was maybe more in line with them. But it did create kind of a rift between him and a younger, more radical generation and could almost be read as a sort of political Freudian slip where he kind of let uh, loose with uh, how he actually intends to go about politics. Could you talk about what happened here? Sure. So. Port Huron Statement is the founding document for the Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS, which is one of the most important movements in the 60s. And it comes out of an earlier kind of social democratic group that Harrington was basically part of the the parent organization of, and they were basically like reforming and and everything. So there are some younger people who are involved, like people like Tom Hayden, who I believe later is like a state senator in California. And he's kind of more lefty at that point in his career. And so they you know, as they're part of their rebranding, they come up with the Puritan Huron Statement. And Harrington's involved in a lot of the drafting. And it reflects many of his ideas. There's all stuff about supporting the labor movement, civil rights, realigning the Democratic Party. It's not a revolutionary document. It's not calling for, you know, proletarian revolution or anything like that. It's really not even calling for socialism. And, you know, but on the other hand, there is kind of a falling out over it because the Puritan statement, even though it's anti-communist, it, it is also blaming the United States more for the Cold War than the Soviet Union, which is something Harrington doesn't like. And at the, its founding meeting, there was a member of the Young Communist League there, some 18-year-old kid or something. And Harrington was aghast because to him, it was like being in the same room as Joseph Stalin, you know, because, you know, he was of that generation of the old left. So he basically think, you know, he thinks um, when he hears about the document and about who was at the meeting, he's aghast because he's like, we don't work with Stalinists. And he thinks the doc, the pure Huron statement was soft on communism. And him and the parent organization of SCS, they basically lock out Hayden and they basically put him on trial and the other founders. And they're aghast because like, um, it was either Hayden or one of his comrades who says, like, now I know how the Stalinists act. And eventually cooler heads prevail in this. And the and there is no split, at least not at that time. And Harrington does admit he was wrong about it. Like, you know, it's like, listen, I kind of overreacted. You know, a lot of my ideas were actually in there and we should have been more generous to the youth. Something he'd actually warned his uh, other uh, members of the Socialist Party about, too. But a split does happen. He kind of admits, like, listen, if it didn't happen then, it would have happened later. Because it, it's kind of clear from the trajectory of SDS that they were certainly going to, they were moving more left than Harrington was because, you know, he kind of had found his niche. So I'll stop there because I, I think we can get into that more if you want to get into Vietnam. <laughs> Yeah, I was just about to ask, you know, moving along into the 60s. So Harrington um, has some um, interesting takes on Vietnam. He's following Max Shackman to some degree and just kind of coming up with some odd positions for a socialist to have on uh, international diplomacy and, 
you know, foreign policy from the United States, the war in Vietnam, that sort of thing. Um, could you speak to kind of how they oriented to that and what it kind of show where we see Harrington going politically? Um, sure. What so, was the kind of underlying logic between his orientation? Right. So the Vietnam War, you know, really picks up with like, first of all, Harrington had been aware about the struggle in Vietnam, you know, since the 50s, unlike a lot of Americans. So he actually knew about Dian Dan Phu and stuff like that. But with the, the Gulf of Tonkin and like the American escalation, First of all, Harrington was supporting Johnson. He had supported Johnson's reelection in 1964, and he supported, you know, the Johnson administration to the end because, you know, he saw like, you know, the possibilities for domestic reform. He didn't want to do anything about that. You know, he didn't want to jeopardize that. When it came to Vietnam, now Harrington was not this bloodthirsty person who wanted to just, you know, nuke them or something. He, he does say in paper multiple times that we, we should, uh, that, you know, the war is wrong. We shouldn't support it. But there's all these kind of caveats that are important because there's sometimes it's a very strange debate I've seen among socialists about like, oh, you know, you know, it's like so people, defenders of Harrington will say, well, he opposed the war on paper, you know, all this. And it's like, yes, yes, he does. But it's like it's about how to oppose the war. And Harrington's idea is if you accept the logic of realignment about what he's doing, and then, you know, Shackman is for this, too is you can't embarrass the liberals. You can't be militant. You can't do anything illegal like burning draft cards. If you're going to have anti-war protesters, you cannot have communists there. You cannot support the National Liberation Front in South Vietnam. You basically have to blame both sides, but, but of course, more the communists. So basically, you can't do anything that in practice could end the war because you need to stay in the Democratic Party, allied with the liberals, and you basically have to turn a blind eye to imperialism for that. And for SDS, more or less is moving to militant action. They, they have protests, they organize, there are communists there, there are people who support the National Liberation Front, and a lot of members of SDS are burning draft cards, they're doing all kinds of illegal and militant actions, and Harrington won't have that. And eventually this actually causes a split between them in 1965 or six. So basically on paper, he's certainly opposed to the war, but he wants to keep it in with respectable boundaries, <coughs> which means basically that um, he's not willing to do anything in practice to end the war because he puts realignment and the needs of supporting the Democrats first. Yeah, and in the wake of this, um, Harrington would also resign from the Socialist Party. Um, could you maybe speak to that split he would eventually have? Like, this is also, you know, a split he has from the left as well um, in SDS as they're kind of moving more in a more militant direction. Um, where was Harrington at this time? Yeah, so he splits with the Socialists in the early 70s, and it's kind of interesting. So on the one hand, it's also a split with Shackman even more than the Socialist Party. Because on the one hand, Shackman is moving in a very even more right wing than Harrington because he's basically writing off the whole new left. He's supporting all the labor bureaucracy. And Harrington's like, listen, we need to support the more moderate elements of the new left. We need to support the liberals in the, the labor bureaucracy. And furthermore, Shackman is total gung ho for American victory in Vietnam. And after the Tet Offense of Harrington, but actually, I'm sorry, after more the election of Nixon, Harrington is more willing to come out openly against the Vietnam War. For him, 
it's probably a bit easier at this point because it's not really, I should add, it's not like a principal position on his part because he's a Republican in the White House. So it's very easy to be against the war at that point for him. And a lot of the ruling class is in that point as well. They're saying, you know, we need to pull out. So this is causing, you know, weird factions in the Socialist Party that like bubble over over the next few years. And, you know, sometimes people like, you know, they note the weird splits on Trotskyism or Maoism. The Socialist Party by 1972 has like the weirdest split. Harrington and his faction are backing George McGovern, who's like a liberal kind of supporting the moderates in the new left. And it's for like a withdrawal from Vietnam. And Max Shackman and his crew are essentially backing Richard Nixon and the continued war in Vietnam. So that's the party of Eugene Debs with, you know, that's how it splits down the middle. And Harrington resigns around, you know, 72, 73. And he basically says in his resignation letter, like, you know, you guys have gone too far. I'm actually more true to our original vision of realignment and Shackmanism and all of that. And the Socialist Party actually changes its name to Social Democrats USA, and Harrington forms a new group. Um, but it's kind of strange because he's he uh, basically had split from both the the farther left people in SDS and other militants before that, and now he splits with people even farther to the right than him. So he's kind of like this uh, moderate in the middle, if you want to put it like that. Yeah, going a decade ahead, in March 1982, uh, Harrington would oversee the founding of the Democratic Socialists of America, which is uh, kind of his primary legacy, um, you could maybe say, and is still active today, as we were talking about at the beginning. Um, Could you speak to the original uh, political and social conditions that he founded it in and what his vision for DSA was? What What were his hopes and ambitions for this party? Sure. So to, let's. I want to go back to um, after he leaves the Socialist Party. So this is around seventy three or so. He forms a group called the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, or DASOC, or DSOC, however you want to pronounce it. And it's he's basically the acknowledged leader. It has a lot of other socialist intellectuals, social democrats, people like Irving Howe, a lot of kind of like left uh, and liberal bureaucrats in the labor movement, <clears throat> a lot of like these kind of moderate academics and whatnot. And its basic idea is to realign the Democratic Party. You know, it's this, um, and it's also part of the Socialist International, eventually, of kind of this international organization of like all like these social democratic uh, parties. And over the course of the 70s, he's involved in like these initiatives in the Democratic Party to support like a more New Deal, Great Society program that really doesn't go anywhere. And the organization grows to a few thousand, though it's able to pick up some traction. And it eventually fuses with a group called the New American Movement, which had come out of SDS, and it kind of was more like activist oriented. And they were also more moderate. They were they were not revolutionaries. They were supporting initiatives in the Democratic Party. A big sticking point as they were kind of moving closer to Harrington's group is they had supported Palestinian liberation and Harrington was very vocal liberal Zionist. So he was very much opposed to like, you know, you know, the Palestinian liberation struggle. And there's a compromise reach of supporting a two state solution between them. And they form a group in, you know, in 1982 to, 
uh, called the Democratic Socialists of America. It's 40 years and like six months now. So, uh, and Harrington's the acknowledged leader. It's about five to 6,000 members. And their program is essentially the, the program of Harrington. It's, you know, we're going to have realignment. We're going to have a reformist democratic path to socialism. And I should add, it doesn't see itself as a party. It's not like the Communist Party or the Socialist Party. They see themselves as working as the left wing of realism. And by that, it is within the Democratic Party. It's very electoralist. You know, it supports all these candidates. And there are members of Congress of the, in the 80s who are members of DSA. Uh, I believe Ron Dellums is one. I can't think of any others off the top of my head, but that's basically their program as they enter the 80s and like the beginnings of Reagan administration and whatnot. Yeah, jumping right off of that, one of their first opportunities at a serious realignment would come in the form of Jesse Jackson's uh, presidential campaigns in the kind of Rainbow Coalition. So this, um, given Harrington's background as a civil rights activist and his longstanding commitment towards trying to offer up kind of reform candidates. Um, Jesse Jackson should have been like a primary, you know, way for him to approach doing that. Uh, could you talk about what he did with uh, Jesse Jackson in those elections, those campaigns? Yeah. So, um, so Jack, so Jesse Jackson was forming something called the rainbow coalition, which is probably the best chance for realignment in Harrington's lifetime. It's, kind of this progressive, you know, social democratic ideas, both in domestic policy of like New Deal, Great Society. And it's very anti-intervention in Central America, which is a big deal at the time. It's opposed to apartheid in South Africa. And it's for the recognition of Palestinians. And it gets a lot of trade union support, civil rights support, all the kind of stuff Harrington kind of likes from, you know, or, you know, envisioned for realignment. But Harrington doesn't support it, uh, Jackson for the for the reason like uh, the, the official labor movement was supporting Walter Mondale and Harrington refused to do that. And he th- considered Jackson a bit too radical at the time and everything. And the thing is, Jackson himself, you know, he ran a very top down organization and was very electoral focused and it wasn't willing to really challenge the Democrats at the end of the day. So when he lost the primaries, he got in line. With Mondo. <clears throat> and so Harrington basically, he didn't support Jackson in 84. He does in 88 when Jackson's a bit more moderate, although he's very careful to whisper to Jackson, like, if you don't want me to write speeches for him, you don't, I won't, you know, but if you do, I'm, I'm happy to do it. But Harrington's actually a bit more excited about Michael Dukakis. He might have been the only person in the world who was excited about Dukakis at the time. And, you know, as someone from Massachusetts, that's kind of funny. So, and the thing is, though, the relation between Harrington and Jackson is kind of the same for all these realignment efforts. You know, because going back to the 60s with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and then there was some stuff in the 70s with, like, the Progressive Alliance. To stay inside the Democratic Party, you have to make all these compromises. And Harrington is always willing to do that. He's always willing to support the labor officialdom and the Democratic Party establishment. So to him, you know, that's what comes first, which means his own plan, his own ideas for realignment, he's not willing, you know, he's always willing to sacrifice it to stay in the Democratic Party. 
And he does that with basically Jackson and, you know, all these kind of movements within the Democratic Party, they face that contradiction. And unless they're willing to, like, leave the Democratic Party and challenge them, you know, it kind of shows they're just like they're a housebroken opposition. And, you know, Harrington is basically the ideologue for that. So. Yeah, so it's at this point in the story that Harrington passes away. I believe he passed away of cancer um, in 1989. Um, But you offer in the end a very long appendix kind of teasing out what we could maybe call Harringtonism. So I'm hoping we can maybe um, just kind of go through some of the main ideas. Um, One you bring up is spiritual materialism, and it's Harrington's response or alternative to what he considers kind of a vulgar Marxism uh, or historical materialism. Could you maybe explain what exactly he means by this? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I th- he blames a l- spirit. Uh, he doesn't like vulgar uh, materialism, which is basically just historical materialism. He blames that on angles, so-called distortions of Marxism, which is not true. And he basically wants to make room in Marxism for the spiritual consciousness. He thinks that Traditional Marxism doesn't focus on ideas and culture enough, which, again, I don't think is true in either Marx or Engels. And I think he's basically making a rationale to open the way for um, spirituality, irrationalism. And this goes back to the earlier question you asked about religion. I think he's kind of has like a secret hope to kind of smuggle the supernatural back in there. But he, it's kind of interesting when he goes through like the various points of the spiritual materialist program. He lists them all in one of his books. And then he kind of says, you know what? It's more like, you know, to quote the first Pirates of the Caribbean, it's more like these are not rules so much as guidelines. And we're not going to even follow them. And so basically, he's not trying to reconcile theory and practice as most Marxists do. We want our theory to closely resemble, if not identify with our practice practice. He's basically saying it's really separate. So it's, it becomes a justification for his opportunism. Cause if you were a strict Marxist, you couldn't do the things he's doing, like supporting the democratic party or imperialism, but if spiritual materialism is kind of this separate thing on its own then it really can't conflict with it. So you can kind of, you know, justify it saying like, listen, it's a guideline. We're not bound by dogmas. But, you know, in his case, the anti-dogma is I I just want to vote for the Democrats and everything, which is very opportunist, like almost any Marxist would tell you. So spiritual materialism, it it actually isn't his idea per se. He developed, he borrows some of it from a, a, a Marxist humanist named Eric Fromm. And it's really just kind of, but more or less, it's it's uh, something he adopts. And I think it's not just a justification for opportunism. It also kind of shows how little he understands Marx and Engels. Because they actually, if you understand historical materialism, it's not the vulgar kind he describes. It actually does allow for, you know, the range of ideas. But it does actually emphasize how material conditions shape us in the last instance. And it's something I think he has a lot of trouble kind of getting around or understanding, actually, because he kind of he kind of sometimes says, you know what, it's not sometimes it's the material circumstances, but sometimes it's ideas and sometimes it's this other thing. And I just think it kind of shows you like how eclectic and confused his worldview is. Yeah, another thing you bring up is his defense of what um, 
you know, in left theory and history is often referred to as the popular front as opposed to the united front. Um, could you maybe explain, you know, mm-hmm. what he's actually trying to get at? You describe it um, as uh, he believed in a popular front without Stalinism. Okay, so the pop, uh, so uh, to get, for a shorthand, traditionally Marxists describe a united front as you know union of like socialists and communist parties, so working class parties. Whereas a popular front is something different. It's not just uniting socialists and communist parties. It's working with like liberal capitalists and sometimes even conservative parties, depending on the country we're talking about. And this was something that kind of came out in the 1930s with the Communist International. Um, and basically to fight fascism, the, Com- the Communist International said that all communists need to ally with liberals and socialists. But in practice, it became kind of this anti-revolutionary force in places like Spain, especially, or France. Uh, in the United States, it had a slightly different effect because... The Communist Party went from being this very militant revolutionary organization to supporting FDR and the New Deal. In the labor movement, they were very much kind of breaking on like a lot of rank and file militancy. They were embracing American nationalism. And during World War II, they were breaking strikes. They're supporting Japanese internment. So they basically became like these militant foot soldiers for the New Deal. They ended up And it sounds strange that someone like Harrington, who's a supposed anti-Stalinist, would embrace this. But if you think about it, the Communist Party after 35 is not actually acting like revolutionaries, are they? They're not acting like communists. In fact, by supporting liberals, by supporting labor bureaucrats, by supporting nationalism and refusing to oppose imperialism, they're being social democrats. They're being democratic socialists. So Harrington... you know, kind of likes that. That's basically the communists, their dirty little secrets. They're acting like the ideal of social Democrats. And for Harrington, it's like, you know, that's pretty good. We just, if we just get rid of like all that allegiance to the Soviet Union and Stalin, that's kind of what we want. Because historically in other places in Europe and the world, social democrats have done all that they've not opposed imperialism they have been breaks on labor militancy and rank and file and revolutionary movements and they supported like all like these capitalist governments and that's basically what he wants to do and so that's kind of where that comes from and it's it's kind of like one of those you know hegel would call it like the cunning of reason here or unreason if you want is like he comes out of this supposed anti-Stalinist tradition, which is opposed to the Popular Front tactics, but he ends up embracing it under the new gu- his new guise of democratic socialism. And yeah, so and so you'll actually find like like again, he looks very fondly on this era when you know communists act like democratic socialists. Yeah, another area I'd like you to talk on a bit is his thoughts on foreign policy, or put another way, imperialism. He tended to assume a certain sort of benevolence on the part of the United States when it was uh, engaging with other countries, particularly in the third world. Um, He didn't tend to see it... um, our actions as motivated by any sort of, you know, economic imperatives, for example. Um, How did he see that kind of international dynamic playing out? Sure. So to start off, um, 
there's a longstanding debate in in Marxism and socialism about imperialism going back, you know, to um, the early 20th century. And one of the questions is, is imperialism a new stage of capitalism? You know, is like, you know, these control of monopolies, export of capital and colonialism, is it like a new stage or is it just a policy? Is it in that case, does it mean it's just a bunch of bad apples doing it? Just like these reactionary capitalists who are doing it. And someone like Lenin says it's a new stage of capitalism, which means if you're opposed to imperialism as a Leninist, there is no non-imperialist capitalist in a country like the U.S. or Britain or wherever. It means you have to be anti-imperialist, means you have to be pro-socialist, pro-revolutionary. Harrington doesn't think it's a new stage. He thinks it's a policy, which means there are bad apples. And he thinks most of them happen to be Republicans because he thinks when people like Johnson do it, it's more like they're kind of led astray. They're basically good people. But, you know, they, they let the imperatives of, you know, fighting communism just lead them to a bad end. And it leads him to, like, have some very strange views on on things. He thinks, like, you know, the third world would be better if we had liberals in the White House. Like, you, you know, because that was he basically says, you know, about Chile, which was overthrown by a U.S. coup in 73. You know, if there were liberals in the White House, they wouldn't have done that. And which is kind of strange because it was the liberal Kennedy administration that launched like terror attacks on Cuba in the 60s. And it was the Johnson administration, of course, that launched the Vietnam War, overthrew the government of the Dominican Republic. And these were liberals. But he basically sees, you know, for also he, he looks very fondly on like American elites, you know, if they express concern for the poor. Like at one point, I believe Robert McNamara was like head of like either the IMF or the World Bank, one of those organizations. And Harrington interviewed him and McNamara said about how he like really felt concerned for the poor, wanted to alleviate their condition. But this was also the man who was like orchestrated like the Vietnam War. And Harrington is like very, you know, giving him like the benefit of not just the benefit of doubt, but that's like practically delusional to say that about someone like McNamara. And he basically thinks, you know, if you have liberals in office in, in the imperial core, they can ease the condition in the third world and allow for like a more just like new de- international new deal is kind of what he wants. But he really has nothing to offer people in the third world because he basically see, he sees that they're suffering, you know, in domination and poverty. But he thinks revolutions will just lead to Stalinism and totalitarianism. So he says, don't do that. But he can't see any other way out aside from, you know, you know, just kind of, you know, help pressure the liberals and, you know, be nice. And eventually we'll have a global new deal. There's basically just saying to people in the third world, you know, sit on your hands and wait until we have nice liberals who will save you. That's kind of what he wants, because, you know, he, if he refuses a revolutionary option, he really doesn't have much left aside from good intentions and hope. And, you know, that's really not going to get you far. Yeah. One last thing I want to tease out. Um, you already alluded to Harrington's misunderstanding of the nature of the state or the Democratic Party. Um 
but also he has a kind of ambiguous understanding or a misunderstanding of the state under capitalism. Uh, He sees it as just a sort of neutral place where if we can just get, as you're saying, kind of these benevolent liberals into office, then they'll be able to kind of pass the right sorts of reforms. Um, And you argue that this is kind of a misunderstanding, uh, particularly from a Marxist perspective. Could you speak to that? Yeah. So traditionally, Marxists from Marx, Engels to Lenin, um, they see the state as an instrument of class domination, you know, controlled by the bourgeoisie. You, it, you know, it rests on, you know, forms of violence. Certainly there are, you know, it does use forms of consent as well. But Harrington doesn't even see a ruling class. He just sees an upper class. And he thinks the state is basically a terrain of struggle. You know, if you have enough weight from like these kind of movements, he's hoping you can tip the balance and transform the state and, you know, push things gradually towards socialism. And even in his transition, so he has no idea, no conception of Lenin, like smash the state and construct, you know, some kind of commune or Soviet or something like that. In fact, he wants to use the good enlightened bureaucrats as like the stepping stones to socialism. And this is like, so, you know, he, he, he envisions no form of force or violence involved, in, which is just like, it's just historically, it's just wrong. First of all, every revolution that's happened has involved smashing the existing state. And even these instances where people have tried to um, peacefully or democratically construct socialism or something much farther left, it's brought a violent reaction from the capitalists and the army and the state bureaucracies, etc. You know, the Spanish Civil War is an example, Chile, you know, which Harrington, you know, had seen. And so this idea that the ruling class is just going to give up their privileges and powers is just something, un, you know, it's just disproven by history. And Harrington just has this such a vision of a gradual, peaceful, democratic way to socialism. And he can't consider that. So I don't even know, aside from, you know, he does have, you know, puts his proposals forward, but in practice, I don't see how it happens. It seems like it it requires some form of magic to happen. Because if you actually look at the scales of history in Russia, China, or wherever, you know, the transition to socialism has not been that. And the, the idea of the, the state is some kind of neutral apparatus, I think, has been disproven. Certainly the state can maneuver, you know, and, but and sometimes it turns against particular capitalists, but it's ultimately their instrument. It's not a working class tool. Yeah, I want to bring things up to speed in the current day and ask. Um, so DSA, as you said, has kind of exploded in just the last few years. Um, Bernie Sanders, while technically a Democrat, was kind of somewhat seen as a DSA candidate, symbolically at least, and ran a couple insurgent runs. You've got AOC and the squad, um, as well as a lot of other people in kind of smaller local offices who are representing DSA. Um but it doesn't seem to be building to anything. It's very much still oriented towards this kind of reformist approach um, towards around orienting towards the democratic party. So this, would you say this is kind of what Harrington would have wanted? Um, You know, is this what he kind of hoped for the party to eventually become? I think in broad strokes. Yes, actually. I mean, Bernie Sanders, you're right. He, 
he was the DSA candidate because they did endorse him two times. Um, and he was safely running in the Democratic Party. You know, he says like, you know, he can give a nice speech on inequality, but, you know, Sanders is very much a supporter of, you know, Israel, um, supporter of American wars. And it's true that in the like last five or six years, DSA has exploded in terms of membership. And they have about 100 members elected to office, AOC, Jamal Bowman, there's a bunch of others. And but the thing is, almost all of them are Democrats. And if you actually read what people like AOC say, they're not planning a break with the Democratic Party. They want to bring the Democrats back to their New Deal roots, as they say. They basically want to train, change it, or should we say realign it. And, you know, there are some resolutions that have been passed in DSA that say sometime in the long-term future, we're going to, you know, make a workers' party that's independent of the Democrats. But in practice, they're not. They're supporting, you know, all these candidates. They get out and campaign for them. And I know that, you know, there are obviously variations in DSA branches, and I'm not saying everyone's in lockstep or anything like that. But on the whole, it's very electoral focused. That's where they put their energy. And by electoral, it means getting out the vote for the Democratic Party. So on that major issue, and there are, you know, there are, we could point out all kinds of different changes that have happened in DSA, certainly. But on that major issue, it's pretty unchanged. It's heavily focused on the Democratic Party. Yeah, it's still very Harrington-esque in content and orientation. Since you mentioned um, Bowman, um, I wanted to ask um, if there are any points in DSA where you think there are certain sorts of valuable tensions starting to emerge. So like last summer around Bowman's uh, support of Iron Dome, that would just be one example. But I'm wondering if you see DSA starting to kind of run up against the limits of its own strategy or orientation. Do you see certain tensions starting to emerge between maybe young and old, for example, or different factions? So the Bowman case is very interesting because, yes, he did vote for the Iron Dome, and that did cause a lot of outrage. I know there was back and forth over their BDS working group, you know, got dissolved. I think it's been reformed since then, and various branches called for his expulsion. So that's actually very encouraging, but there's also kind of limits even within that. And I want to be careful about how I phrase this just because... Again, it's encouraging that people are outraged by that. That's a very good thing. But on the one hand, and this is something like the DSA National pointed out when because when they refused to expel him, they're like, listen, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, also votes for these things, and we endorsed him. AOC has also voted for the IDF, and they haven't expelled her. And other DSA members as well, you know, they, they're Democrats and everything, so they're they're kind of correct to point out the inconsistency on, on that, but they're doing it from an opportunistic way. I'd say if you were to actually oppose Bauman, you'd actually have to be consistent and you would be like, yes, we should actually oppose AOC and all these other folks. And so it's an encouraging step, but it has to go farther. You have to be willing to chat. If you're actually a socialist and internationalist, if you're actually opposed to Zionism, you actually have to be opposed to Zionism and all the, you know, you know, people who call themselves socialists and support that. 
if you're opposed to American military spending, then you really shouldn't actually be endorsing figures like Bernie Sanders or other Democrats. And it also comes up to the fact that you cannot, you know, discipline members of the Democratic Party as a socialist. It's it's their party. It's not yours. So in that sense, there are tensions there. I don't think there's been some kind of like fully fleshed out co you know coalition that's like going to like institute some kind of like proletarian revolutionary program or something like that. I think if it you know if there are tendencies that exist, I think they're still groping for a way. I'm not super optimistic they'll find one just because you know you shouldn't. If you're a socialist and a communist, you don't have much going for you beyond like you know the fact you have principles and your program and stuff like that. And you can't be long-term in an organization that's willing to tolerate support for apartheid Israel, the Democratic Party, or imperialism. Because you're gonna discredit yourself and you're gonna discredit your ideas. So I mean, I think if any organ I don't think the weight in the organization exists for like some kind of majority split. There may, there certainly have been people who have left. There might be a minority that can split. I can't say, and I'm, I'm, I don't like to predict the future too much, but what I would say is, you know, it's important for revolutionaries to have their own organization and to exclude people who tolerate those kind of things. That legacy of Harrington is wrong as socialists and we should oppose it. So where that goes, I can't give you like a roadmap, but again, it's encouraging first steps. I see limits to it and I'll be curious to see where it goes. Yeah. So to tie this conversation off, you were just speaking about kind of the importance on the left of having, if nothing else, certain principles. So Harrington's guiding principle seems to have been pragmatism, um, which is a very important principle for any political activist uh, to have, um, to find ways to adapt yourself to certain conditions, to find ways to try and implement your ideas and your principles into actual policy. Harrington seems to have taken that much further. So I'm wondering if in closing, you could maybe just speak to, uh, the role you see pragmatism should actually be playing, um, in left politics, um, and how Harrington has perhaps brought it a little too center stage for too long. I mean, I'll say, you know, to start off, I'm not a pragmatist, and I don't think pragmatism has a place to play in Marxist politics. I think we we need to embrace, like, revolutionary materialism, rationalism, and we need to build our own organizations and whatnot. But in terms of pragmatism in Harrington, what I will say um, is... This is something I kind of get to in the uh, towards the end of the book is the fact that most DSA members either don't know who Harrington is, but they and, you know, they haven't and they certainly haven't read him. But in a certain sense, like his ideas, like are still like they're kind of like unspoken common sense, because, yeah, obviously, you know, you would be hard pressed to find a DSA member who knows what the hell spiritual materialism is. But in terms of like the everyday stuff, like getting out the vote for the Democrats, reformism, opportunism, that that's like basically always there. It's basically in the structures of the organization. 
and it is, you know, you can even find, if you actually look, you can find like people who will openly express it in DSA and in organs like Jacobin that, you know, they're openly, you know, come from like the legacy of Harrington. And it's unfortunately, it's not just DSA, but you find like the type of arguments of Harrington of this pragmatic socialism or social democracy throughout the broader American left. And I kind of joked at one point to some friends, like I could take an article by Harrington in 1964 or 1968. I could change a few names and I could publish it for election season this year or next year. And it would be the same thing because he and that's the that's the thing that's valuable looking at like Harrington, not because you agree with him, because he actually expresses very coherently and sophisticated in a sophisticated manner all these arguments for opportunism, for supporting the Democratic Party, for reformism. And his, you know, articles for election season, you can find in like very poor manner in like, you know, The Nation Today or uh, Dissent or Jacobin or wherever, the same type of arguments, just with the names changed. And so you can find all of, you know, that type of pragmatism, because I think going with what works and everything, it's, you know, it leads to dulling down your principles, to sacrificing the organizations we need. And ultimately, Harrington's life and the whole history of realignment and supporting the Democratic Party doesn't get you to socialism. It gets you farther away from it. It makes Marxists into liberals and into foot soldiers for an imperialist party. And that's something I think we should oppose. Yeah, so that brings us through uh, the book. So as a final question, I always like to ask, what, if anything, are you working on now? Do you have anything we can look forward to in the near or distant future? I don't have a current project that I'm starting, but um, I I am going to be having coming forward is the book I mentioned in the very beginning called The Dialectics of Saturn which is about Stalinism. So I'm going to be doing edits on that. It's going to be published from Roman Littlefield within the next one or two years. And I'm basically looking at various debates around Stalinism from anti-communists, from people in the communist parties, from uh, Western Marxism, from people in Trotskyism. And it's a lot, it was a lot of fun actually to write just because, you know, you got to really delve into like a lot of this I got to dig into like a lot of this intellectual history from everything from George Orwell to Adorno to the Black Book of Communism to Solzhenitsyn and Trotsky and, and all of that. It was a lot of fun actually to do. Yeah, look forward to that. Um, so in the meantime, Doug Green, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me.